Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Legal Frontiers podcast. My name is Stephen Minas, and today we're bringing you a presentation by Dr. Michelle Lim on the topic of Biodiversity 2050. Can the Convention on Biological Diversity deliver a world living in harmony with nature? 2021 is shaping up as a crucial year for global biodiversity governance. The 15th Conference of the Parties to the Convention on Biological Diversity has been rescheduled to October this year to be held in Kunming, China. And it is anticipated that that conference will take a number of key decisions for the future of biodiversity governance, including on a post-2020 global biodiversity framework. In this episode, Dr. Lim takes us through the background of the Convention on Biodiversity, some of its achievements, the challenges to effective implementation, and the questions which are being faced this year to strengthen biodiversity governance. Dr. Michelle Lim is a senior lecturer at Macquarie Law School in Australia. Uh, she's part of the executive group of the Centre for Environmental Law there. And she has also been a contributor to the IPBES Global Assessment, IPBES being the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. The presentation by Michelle will be followed by a question and answer session. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, everyone, and thanks in particular to Stephen for this wonderful invitation to talk about the topic which Stephen has already outlined. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I speak to you, I'm speaking to you from the unceded sovereign lands of the Wolomadugal clan of the Darug Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present and thank them for their continued custodianship of country, of land and of nature since the beginning of time. Now we know that biodiversity is significantly threatened globally. And this was underscored in 2019 when the IPBES Global Assessment concluded and came up with these key findings. First, that nature underpins human existence, a good quality of life and everything which makes life worth living. But we are losing biodiversity at rates never before seen in human history. There remains the possibility to change this, but we can only do so with transformative change if we revolutionize our current relationships with the natural world. So as the IPBES report was being finally negotiated and concluded in Paris, a similar process was occurring between G7 environment leaders just down the road, also in France, in Metz. And, that, and from that came the METS Agreement on Biodiversity, which all signals an increasing awareness of the need for global cooperation around biodiversity and creates this huge sense of hope, including in the lead up to COP15 in Kunming, where 
the post-2020 framework on biodiversity is expected to be concluded. Now, as we sit on the brink of the possible conclusion of the next steps for biodiversity, I'd like to take us down memory lane a little bit to consider that this is a convention that is almost and will be next year, 30 years old. In the, those 30 years, the world has changed significantly. We have changed significantly. Some of you may recall when the CBD came into being. I don't, I do remember 1992. Um, I remember where I was in 1992. But importantly, what we'll do today is not only look back at the convention of the last 30 years, but also look forward as to what the next 30 years can be and needs to be. So in addition to that broad overarching question I posed earlier, I'm also considering these two questions. Can COP15 in, in Kunming shift the convention from an instrument of inspiration to one of action? Can the convention draw on lessons of its past to shape the futures we want for humans and for nature? So today I'll be mostly talking from my recently published article in the Yearbook of International Environmental Law, but also taking it a little bit further given the developments that have occurred since this, um, since the paper went into went, went to press. So I'll be looking at these three points. I'll start by highlighting the challenges of global biodiversity loss in the Anthropocene. And then as we've, we've already started discussing, look at the three decades of the convention. And finally, and importantly, talk through the fundamental and urgent changes required at Kunming and beyond. So, as I said earlier, we know that biodiversity is under threat like never before in human history. Coming back to the IPBES, um, IPBES Global Assessment, the state of biodiversity and nature's contributions to people is under significant threat. Current extinction rates are 10 to perhaps 100 times higher than any time in the last 10 million years 75% of land surface, 66% of oceans have been significantly modified by human activity. In the last 50 years, we've lost 80% of wetland cover and 50% of coral cover. And that, due to the impacts of climate change, due to the other drivers of biodiversity loss, is only going to continue if nothing, if we don't, don't engage in transformative change. And if nothing changes, the IPBES assessment predicts that 1 million species could go extinct, many within the next um, 20 to 30 years. And importantly, biodiversity is fundamentally important for its own sake, but also to us. And what the IPBES Global Assessment also outlined is that the many benefits and contributions that we get from nature cannot be replaced by synthetic means. And so if we lose the threats of life itself, the diversity of life itself, global food security is under, under threat and our capacity to respond to natural disasters is also significantly under threat. 
So the question is, how do we shift the curve? How do we bend the curve of biodiversity loss? What do I mean by that? As you can see from this picture, the line going downwards is the health of the, the health of biodiversity. Um, downward trend since the 1970s. This is despite the appearance of the Convention of, on Biological Diversity and its associated mechanisms which attempt to bend the curve upwards. Importantly, models have shown, and if you see that from the green line, it remains possible to bend the curve upwards. But as I've said earlier, transformative change is required. We need to fundamentally rethink our relationships with nature and with each other. Otherwise, business as usual, as you see in the red, is looking towards a future where biodiversity is significantly depleted. So there are significant new novel contemporary challenges for dealing with biodiversity at the global level. Scale is an important one. Many of you are likely familiar with the planetary boundaries framework. So within that biodiversity loss as um, illustrated in the biosphere integrity boundary, biodiversity loss is one of the key biophysical um, thresholds which humanity is looking to transcend more quickly than any of those other thresholds. The more that each of these boundaries are transgressed, the greater likelihood or limitation to living within a safe operating space for humans and for nature. So biodiversity and climate change are the two most important, um, two most important planetary boundaries, and yet, Climate change is the one that gets all the attention. So you'll hear a few gripes from me about that today. But what the planetary boundaries framework also highlights is the difficulties of scale, the difficulties of articulating a planetary boundary for biodiversity. So in Georgina Mays, Belinda Reyes, in their paper attempting to identify a biodiversity boundary, identified the lack of existing global scale thresholds. So not um, Unlike climate change, where it's much more easy, uh, it's much easier to define, there's much more difficulty in even treating biodiversity as a global issue. And there's also incomplete knowledge about how ecosystems interact with each other when you go from local to regional to global scales. And the issue of scale isn't just one that we see in the global governance of biodiversity, we see it in climate as well. The difficulty of global governance challenges, including in climate, to grapple with multiple jurisdictional, but also ecological scales. So climate change has been quite, the climate change community have been quite effective in, cre in creating this narrative where climate change is an issue necessitating a global response. We see this, for example, in this um, two, de two degree global target for climate change. What this masks, however, is what we intuitively know, that we live in a world with multiple climates, not just one climate. And across those multiple climates, across time, human communities have different ways of interacting with these climates. Yet the global governance narrative 
as I've, I said earlier, has been very effective in, in talking about this, this need for a global temperature and a global carbon budget. So my point here is even with climate, there would be benefit for, for recognising the need for more place-based local responses rather than an abstraction of climate to the global level. But for biodiversity, this is even more important because the causes and impacts of biodiversity occur differently at different scales. Because of the different ways, we, we said that was the case for climate, but even more so for nature, for biodiversity, for the food we eat. So the, different, the food we eat, the way we engage with our natural places, even more so than climate. There's so many different ways in which people interact with nature at these different scales. Humans are deeply embedded in and dependent on the specific ecosystems that they live within. And only now are we beginning to appreciate the connections of socio-ecological systems across vast distances, otherwise known as telecoupling. Telecoupling? What's, what's telecoupling? It's okay, it's okay, I'm going to explain. So we know and are quite um, well-versed in the fact that global biophysical systems are interconnected. So for example, the examples we've been talking about so far where cli the climatic systems are interconnected across the globe. The ocean systems are also interconnected. We're, we're quite comfortable with that. We're also comfortable with the notion of globalization where human systems are interconnected, uh, socioeconomic, interactions between human systems occur across these great distances. What the observation and the notion of telecoupling highlights is that, in fact, it is social ecological systems that are coupled so that human systems and natural systems are so closely interconnected that you can't take them apart from each other. And because of the flows of information through, um, through the internet, the flows of goods and humans through trade, through travel, impacts on one place, one coupled human social-ecological uh, social system can have, so the actions in, in one system can have huge impacts in distances far, far away from where the action originally occurred. So to give an example, and that in the paper in Science by Liu Tianguo, who was one of the key proponents of this, um, this phenomena of telecoupling. So the example in science is that of soybeans. Soybeans lead to deforestation in Brazil. There's cultural factors of human consumption of soybeans, but also for um, the feed of um, livestock, those pressures in China leading to deforestation in Brazil, where um, they're looking to grow more, more and more soybean. So at the same time, this trade between Brazil and China uh, creates changes in global financial markets. So you're seeing not only these drivers of, for consumption in China having faraway impacts in Brazil, but also in spillover countries because it's of its 
changes across the financial systems as well. And at the same time, dust in the Sahara Desert, aggravated by agricultural practices there, leads to, it floats all over to the Caribbean and then leads to decline in coral and soil and soil fertility and also impacts on human health because of asthma rates. How does that impact Brazil and China? Well, both Brazil and China has, have important investments in tourism in the Caribbean and therefore are then impacted as well. But then the interconnectedness is, is even greater again because the nutrient-rich dust from the Sahara also reaches Brazil, in turn enhancing forest productivity. So if you've got took nothing else away from what I've just said, it's that it's so complex, the interactions, the drivers of biodiversity loss in the Anthropocene, in the age of the internet, in our extensive trade and travel that we're seeing in um, our, the current world in which we live mean that the drivers of biodiversity loss can occur in places far removed from um, the, where the biodiversity loss is actually taking place. So this creates significant challenges for global governance of biodiversity, where the demand of agricultural and wildlife products create significant distant threats and sustainable production can be undermined by international trade. And we saw that in the soybean example as well, which weakens price signals to distant consumers. And a further challenge is what we've just been talking about, this complexity of interactions determining where the cause occurs, where the effect occurs, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, our hyperconnected world also creates a range of opportunities. Due to, we spoke earlier about the internet, the telecoupled flows of information create opportunities for regulation, for corporate social responsibility, and also potential solutions due to the rapid sharing of information. What's the end result of all of this? So we talked about huge threats to biodiversity, these global drivers of biodiversity loss. We talked about scale. We talked about the phenomena of telecoupling, which creates challenges for global biodiversity governance, very different to those of 30 years ago. The end result being, we live in a world very, very different to the one in which the Convention on Biological Diversity came into being. So let's talk about the Convention on Biological Diversity, the CBD. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Let's trace the 30 years of the convention. Born in 1992, opened for signature in Rio at the Rio summit, entered into force in 1993. It's a convention with almost universal membership the United States is a notable non-party, and we'll talk a little bit about that, a bit more about that in a little bit. So the convention aims to provide holistic global solution to biodiversity, um, both to conservation and sustainable use. Importantly, differing from other conventions, it recognizes the variety within and between species and the non-living components of ecosystems. Also interesting is the way in which the 
definition of biological diversity under Article 2 of the Convention, starting as a legal process, has now also been adopted by scientists when they stick to define biodiversity. But conceptually, the CBD is important because in contrast to CITES, to the Convention on Migratory Species, you're moving from a species approach to a more holistic approach, which deals not only with ecosystems and not just individual species, but the ways in which humans interact with these systems. What does the CBD do? So it's three objectives that many of you are likely aware of uh, conservation, sustainable use, and the fair and equitable sharing of benefits arising from the use of genetic resources. Perhaps these objectives might seem to be in conflict with each other, and often they can be. What the objectives illustrate is the compromise in concluding the convention in the attempts to reconcile positions of developed and developing countries. And the content of the convention would suggest a very comprehensive convention. You've got provisions on in situ and ex situ conservation. So that is protected areas, conservation of biodiversity where it occurs, but also ex situ, that is zoos, seed banks, et cetera, et cetera, rehabilitation, restoration, protected areas beyond protected areas, also the governance frameworks for doing it, Article 6. Um, 8 and 10, recognising the need for national level implementation, the need for integration, etc, etc. So on the face of it, not only conceptually an advance, but also the range of issues around biodiversity included in the content of the, of the convention. But, and this is a really, really big qualification. All of the provisions of the convention, well most, are qualified in terms of as far as possible and as appropriate in accordance with particular capabilities subject to national legislation. So you're seeing these huge qualifiers around what the convention um, is and also in Article 3, reaffirming the sovereign right of states to um, their biological resources, to use them subject to national policies, etc. etc. So great content, but all these get out of jail clauses. Perhaps then the lack of teeth of the convention reflects the true intention of the parties. And it's really interesting to see in the when choosing whether to sign up to the convention or not, the different approaches of the UK on the one hand and the US on the other. So we highlighted earlier that the US is a non-party. George Bush Sr. said that the CBD would clearly threaten American jobs. It was worried about intellectual property and environmental provisions being contrary to America's pharmaceutical interests. So the US didn't and hasn't ratified the convention. I say hasn't ratified because the Clinton administration did later on sign the CBD, but has uh, the US has never ratified the convention. In contrast, the UK, the UK said, yeah, let's sign up. That's not an issue. It's just a whole heap of attractive, easily, it's an attractive, easily implemented 
green gesture. And I love this quote from Harriet and Pritchard, which says that the end result of the multiple caveats and escape clauses of the convention is a framework document where countries agree only that biodiversity conservation requires some form of global response. So that's also echoed in the move towards a target-based approach within the convention. So we see this start in 2010, then the Aichi targets, which have just recently concluded and quite likely in Kunming, we're seeing this being extended in the post 2020 targets. So the 2010 biodiversity target aimed to achieve by 2010, a significant reduction of the current rate of biodiversity loss at global, regional and national levels as a contribution to poverty alleviation and to benefit of life on earth. That was it, that was the target. Somehow states were meant to respond and go, oh yeah, I know how to deal with that. So you see in 2000 um, at COP5 of the, of the convention, the strategic plan said, yes, we need a biodiversity target. In 2010, the biodiversity target, uh, in 2002, the biodiversity target was set out. It wasn't until 2004 where uh, the parties, the conference of the parties said, oh yeah, we need also some sub-targets. So you've got the target in 2010, but even in 2004, they're still deciding what the targets are. So all the way in the lead up to this so-called 2010 target, they're still deciding what is it exactly we're meant to be doing. So unsurprisingly, in the 2011 till 2020 strategic plan of the Convention on Biological Diversity, the statement was somewhat euphemistically that, uh, stated somewhat euphemistically that the 2010 target inspired action at many levels, but not on a scale sufficient to address the pressures on biodiversity, we don't say. Well, to their credit, CBD parties recognise the limitations of the 2010 approach and therefore moved in the Aichi targets as an annex to the strategic plan we just talked about. And that's where we see the 2020 vision of being articulated in terms of living in harmony with nature. 20 targets came out, uh, the IHT targets were comprised of 20 targets and importantly went beyond biophysical components of biodiversity to include social and cultural considerations. So you can see across the strategic goals dealing with the range of objectives of the convention, the three that we talked about earlier. In the ITBES global assessment, the extent to which countries had met the IHT targets was assessed and the report card doesn't look very good. So I don't expect you to be able to see all the nitty gritty of all of this, but what you can see is each of the target elements. And you can see that it's mostly red. Um, a little bit, a few targets look like they will be met, including those of um, national biodiversity and um, national biodiversity strategies and action plans, including protected areas. Those are a few of the um, Aichi targets that are on track to be met. But otherwise, lots in the yellow, lots in the red, and plenty of unknown, including those around 
the social and economic rights issues, which suggest the difficulties of shifting the status quo to move towards greater rights-based arguments um, and recognition of the rights of people to engage, um, to, to use biodiversity in, in a sustainable way. And yes, what this signifies is the importance and the need for a change of direction in the target-based approach of the convention. So how do we action immediate and fundamental changes to avoid the sixth mass extinction? We've talked about bending the biodiversity curve. How do we bend that? How do we do that when parties meet in Kunming in a few months? Importantly, we need to interrogate and reimagine re our relationships with nature. The IPBES Global Assessment found that pathways to sustainable futures require us to overturn and fundamentally change our global financial and economic systems to go beyond current dominant limited framings of economic growth. The IPBES Conceptual Framework talked about the need for integrated thinking, incorporating full cycles of interactions between humans and nature, and importantly, of elevating indigenous and cultural knowledge. We need to move beyond mere platitudes around transformation to recognize that humans and nature are intrinsically interconnected. And importantly, as the IPBES Global Assessment found, to allow indigenous peoples and local communities to play a central role in continuing to care for biodiversity. In the post-2020 framework, indigenous peoples and local communities have an observer status. The current draft doesn't go as far as making indigenous knowledges and people central. There's reference to knowledges and participation. The 2030 mission is hopeful it's um, positive, it urges parties to take urgent action across society to put biodiversity on a path to recovery for the benefit of planet and people. However, there's still some limitations. In the updated draft that came out, in last, came out last August, there's 20 action oriented oriented targets. We'll talk about the limitations of that in a little bit. But also a bit of there's, I have a bit of unease around the goals. This talk about nature being valued um, and benefits shared increase by a certain percentage, suggesting this commodification of nature and suggesting that we need to increase the benefits that we reap from nature rather than a more sustainable approach. In some ways, you could say the updated draft is a positive improvement on the initial draft, which, where, which had a lot of discussion about no net loss, which suggests offsets and is really contrary to what we've been talking about in terms of the need to trans, transform human nature relationships. It's still the wording around net improvements, but moving away from no net loss is a positive. There also needs to be greater coordination. We've talked about telecoupling. We've talked about how hyper-connected our socio-ecological systems are across the, across the globe. Yet currently the effective regulation of biodiversity is impeded by treating biodiversity as a sexual issue, by the lack of mainstreaming biodiversity across economic, social, and other environmental spheres. And when you take telecoupling into, into account, as we said earlier, there's all these 
challenges, but also opportunities. Therefore, coordination is so important, including enhancing capacity to trace responsibility to distant consumers and producers. The current draft of the post-2020 framework repeats that of the Aichi targets. There's a lack of effort to identify the feedback and interconnections between the targets themselves. There's an important acknowledgement of the links with climate change and with the social and economic spheres, but a lack of an explicit coordination across each of these, each of the targets and each of the sectors. So looking forward to Kunming, to COP15, another issue that has plagued the CBD since its entry into force or since it since we started thinking about the need for a convention on biological diversity that is the lack of bindingness of the convention so to quote Harrop and Pritchard again this was stated in relation to the Aichi targets but is just as if not even more important at this point where we sit at today that is whatever the advances made in the 2020 targets or indeed now the post 2020 targets the status quo is unlikely to change without further development of clear obligations they go on to point out how failure may result not from the technical issues relating to target setting but the unwillingness of the convention convention's member state to back targets of obligations only aspirations rather than long-term commitments. And therefore, if we continue on this path, it's highly likely that issues deriving from a supervening and short-term political event horizon will too easily supplant any quality or continuity of implementation. So at the same time, a lot of us have heard in the media how the um, post-2020 targets are the Paris Agreement for Biodiversity. They're not. And there's been very different roads to Paris and Kunming. So as many of you will know well, in 2009, the failed negotiations to a successor agreement to the Kyoto Protocol led in Durban in 2011, four years before the Paris Agreement came up to this action plan towards with a specific goal to, towards a binding ultimate goal in Paris. At the same time, the difference between the climate COPs and the biodiversity COPs is the climate COPs meet every year, biodiversity is only every second year. So essentially the road to Paris in terms of any legally binding agreement is double that of or more of that to Kunming. There's limited discussion in current COP um, uh, limited discussion in current negotiations leading up to the COPs as to any legal nature of um, Kunming outcomes. So I am very skeptical of anything even um, remotely similar to a Paris Agreement for Biodiversity coming out of Kunming. But having said that, the targets and it's very likely that we will come up, where we will agree a set of targets based on the current draft targets. They could continue to learn the lessons of the Aichi targets. Because the effective use of targets within multilateral environmental agreements can enhance the credibility of the agreement. But we haven't really seen that with the Aichi targets. 
far too many targets in Aichi repeated here in the draft post 2020 framework, 20 um, action oriented targets when those who have studied goal setting recognize that a few well-defined priorities, explicit goals, and allocation of resources for very few goals are what lead to successful implementation of this goals-based approach to global governance that we're seeing increasingly seeing. Now, accountability mechanisms through the built-in reporting process is another thing that could be learned from Aichi. And as we talked about earlier, the difficulties around the, right the rights-based targets, highlighting that that challenges the status quo to pick up on that when we deal with right rights-based targets that are included in the post-2020 framework. So as we've already started talking about, perhaps there needs to be fewer targets because when you have 20 targets, the need to balance between the targets is so great. The lack of this, of an overarching goal to deal with, with um, inevitable trade-offs trade between economic, social, and environmental targets um, of the post-2020 framework. But most importantly, back to the point we started talking about earlier about transforming human environment relationships, there needs to be a shift in underlying values, one which is oriented towards sustainability, towards reduced consumption and production, one which overturns the dominant neoliberal narrative of more is more and can continue to be more. Government, governments need to provide leadership here. But importantly, and particularly in this hyper-connected telecoupled world, non-state actors also need to be a huge part of defining this. So the key takeaways are this. If we are to stem the unprecedented loss of biodiversity, the target-based approach to the CBD cannot continue in its current form. And as an aside, some of you are likely very familiar with this um, rhinoceros that's on your screen from 206 BC to 8 AD. It is um, a jiuzun, which, believe it or not, is um, a, a wine a wine holder. So it's not just a pretty um, artifact, but also has important use as well. But what it also illustrates is that rhinos used to roam across China, particularly um, in the Han Dynasty. So thinking about extinction processes, but also the important cultural interconnections with nature. And moving back to the need to stem, to stem unprecedented biodiversity loss through the shift in the convention, the key questions I post, posed at the beginning, can the post-2020 framework move the CBD from an instrument of aspiration to one of action? Can the convention draw on the lessons of its past to shape a global governance landscape that moves us towards the futures we want for humans and nature? Well. Yes, no, maybe, and I say yes, because yes, the architecture is there within the CBD to move towards a more binding nature of the convention, something that has plagued the convention since um, it, it came into being. But more maybe and no, if in terms of the current 
draft the current discussion around the post-2020 framework in terms of whether we will re um, result in any binding type instrument and whether the convention can draw on the lessons of its past. Well, yes, it, it can draw on, on those lessons. It's demonstrated its capacity to do so in the shift from post-2020 framework to Aichi, whether it will. That is a separate question altogether. Watch this space, I suppose, is, is the best answer um, at that point, at this point in time. So in conclusion, Kunming provides this critical opportunity to accelerate ambition, not only for the convention, but our shared legal and moral responsibility for safeguarding the ecological foundations on which human development depends. And ultimately, if we are to bend the biodiversity curve, we need not only to heed the lessons of the last 30 years, but also to move swiftly towards deliberate and consolidated transformations of our legal frameworks, but also of our relationships with nature. Now, more than ever before, your planet needs you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, uh, Michelle. You've given us uh, a fascinating look at the direction of change in global biodiversity governance, but also some of the challenges and I think also some of the possibilities in respect of what comes out of the Kunming meeting. And, um, and it's also wonderful that you've provided us with that example of uh, charismatic megafauna uh, from millennia ago, an example of this profound connection between nature and our imaginations and culture, which has been such an important part of civilization. Uh, so the floor is now open for questions. And uh, just as we wait for a first question, uh, perhaps Michelle, I could ask you to reflect a bit further on what has to be done between now and the Kunming meeting uh, to make it a success. Mm. Yes, and that's a, a really good question, and I suppose depends on how one defines success. Obviously, from what I've just been saying, a legally binding instrument to me is where the convention needs to go. I think it's highly unlikely. What needs to be done is to start this process 10 years before, similar, similarly to what was done to achieve Paris. In many ways, I think our focus now needs to shift towards getting the targets right, if you like, rather than I think we've, we've far missed the boat in terms of any legally binding agreement. But of encouraging governments to lift their ambition of also something that's potentially a possibility of greater integration across those existing targets, something that would be success which doesn't yet occur within the targets is some sort of overarching end goal, something that says ecological integrity is the goal that trumps everything else in all of this. So where, when the inevitable trade-offs occur between, say, development, the development-related targets and the um, protection-related targets, that they're um, ecological integrity is an overarching goal for that. But I would then put a caveat to that to, set, to in terms of 
how we define development. One which is around where we move away from the dichotomies of development on the one hand and environment on the other, where we see it as human development and actual actual sustainable development rather than that of, of economic development. So if we can get a key message out of Kuming of how nature and human development can and need to go hand in hand and how we need to transform across jurisdictions at the international level and at the national level, at the local level, um, of engaging a range of different actors, of changing how we live in this world, essentially, and our relationships with nature, that would be an important way forward for the convention. So I see we have a question here from New Zealand. And the question is, what role do you see for harnessing or re-harnessing some of the established international environmental law principles, like the precautionary principle, or do we need new ones? Also, where does due diligence in prevention of harm to common interests fit in, or do we stick to more biodiversity regime specific language? Yes, I think it's important that because when you talk about principles, I immediately think sustainable development. And in my answer, I was like, yeah, we need to do both, but at the same time, recognizing the difficulties around sustainable development, how it's become back to what I was talking about earlier, this lack of this angle around when um, inevitable trade-offs arise or, um, in terms of economic, social, and environmental interests, trying to draw on existing principles, but make uh, my, and I think they are important and that we, we do draw on them as much as possible. My fear perhaps is that, you know, principles such as sustainable development in particular has been co-opted for an economic development um, means rather than ecological sustainable development way of dealing with the interactions across them. So, yes, I think we, we, we need to do both by focusing on existing principles, by maintaining existing protections for biodiversity within existing biodiversity instruments, such as um, what you, I think what, what you're suggesting in, in your comment, but at the same time, by recognising the linkages across the range of other sectors beyond biodiversity. So it's, it's interesting to think about principles and also concepts. Uh, one of the ideas or the concepts you refer to in your article from Ipes is the idea of nature's contribution uh, to people. So perhaps you could just say a bit about what that entails and what, what the potential uh, contribution of that idea might be. Yeah, so it's essentially a shift from the language of ecosystem services, which back to what I was talking about in terms of needing to shift the dominant relationships between humans and nature, where nature is only important if it's of benefit to people. Nature's contribution to people seeks to expand the range, the range of ways in which we value nature. The ecosystem services concept in the beginning also recognize the spiritual values of the spiritual services of nature, the spiritual um, values of nature, the 
non-instrumental values of nature. But then as it developed, it became much more of an instrumental approach. So what nature's contributions to people seeks to do is to shift the thinking and the language from one of services, that nature does things for us, to contributions and through a more bringing, recognizing a range of values of nature, but also a range of worldviews where there's more of a stewardship custodian type relationship with nature um, where ecosystem services are still important, but not the only values. We, we recognize a range of values from the in intrinsic of nature having a right to exist in its own right to, um, on the other hand, instrumental ecosystem services, but also relational in the middle, recognizing the connections to nature, um, but also, um, as I was talking about earlier, custodianship and stewardship of nature is an important way of recognizing the range of ways in which nature has value. And a key part of the nature's contribution to people framework is Again, linking to some of the things I was talking about earlier, the elevation of Indigenous and local knowledges, worldviews and, and people. And if we move back to the, the CBD process, the question is, I, I get your point was to establish an effective legal framework to safeguard biodiversity. And I doubt that could be achieved in COP15 in Kunming because the parties were unwilling to bear such obligations. May I have your comments on this? Yes, I absolutely agree with you. It's needed. I don't think we're going to get that in Kunming for the reasons um, that you've articulated in, in your questions. Uh, and something that has plagued the convention since the convention itself was being negotiated. I guess that question, but also your presentation and your article, uh, you talk about the CBD and how the obligations in it are qualified in various ways. And then the history, the 30 year history that you've taken us through does raise some broader questions about what is the role of international law here? What is the, uh, the value add of international law or is the, the real potential, is the real action perhaps elsewhere? Yeah, and that's that's a really good question and something that, you know, we were sort of alluding to earlier before everybody else came in, like the comparison with the climate, um, with, with Paris, for example. And also um, what I'm hearing is, you know, this broad expansion of, of global governance through goals, where because of the challenges of international law, I was going to say international environmental law, but international law broadly of how it takes so long for a convention to come into being and then get the requisite number of signatures, there's been a shift over the last couple of decades towards a more goals-based approach. And um, I don't necessarily see a goals-based approach as being good or bad, but depending it, what is important is how it's designed. So what I think was effective in Paris was this singular target, a singular goal that people could come around and discuss and also having it sit within the binding obligations of the UNFCCC 
itself. So it is this hybrid of, of binding and non-binding, so suggesting that there are obligations as well. In contrast, you've, well, let's contrast in the whole other end of SDGs, which apart from being part of the UNGA resolution, don't sit within an existing instrument, hardly binding and states knew that it wasn't binding. Again, too many goals to likely be effective. CBD sitting within a so-called binding instrument, perhaps still too many targets. Importantly, um, as we've been discussing, the need for processes which have this explicit goal of a legally binding outcome, which the current process hasn't done to the, hasn't learnt from what made Paris successful in achieving a, a legal outcome. So there's there's a further there's a follow up question here uh, with improved biodiversity target setting. Do you see hope in national court proceedings like those we are seeing in relation to climate change? Does this need special prompting? If so, what prompting? Hmm. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a really yeah. Thank you. It's a really interesting question. Um, I must admit, I hadn't thought about it until now, and when I do think about it. It's again even more important for having few and focused goals in the CBD process. Part of why, and I'm thinking of um, the Gloucester case in New South Wales, the jurisdiction I'm in, the Rocky Hill case, part of why that was easier for judges to pick up is because of the focused nature of the Paris targets much more difficult, perhaps you might argue on the other hand, maybe easier for judges to say, oh, I, I like this type, I, I want, I'm wanting to say this, let's see which of the 20 targets helped me say what I'm wanting to say. Um, but I think even more so the importance of having a clear statement globally in international law of the importance of biodiversity, of protecting biodiversity, above and beyond its exploitation, which could be interpreted under the sustainable use provisions. But having a strong international statement is, yes, great question and um, something that what you're highlighting for me is even more so the importance of, of getting the Kunming targets right. So interestingly, our, our colleague from Kunming has written, as a matter of fact, we handle many, many cases in local courts here in Kunming uh, to protect the environment. Uh, so that's, mm. that's also an interesting observation. Um, and these last couple of questions really do unearth the, the link between domestic legal processes, which might be where enforcement actually happens, but also mm. how then the interna international texts uh, get used in those processes. Exactly, yeah. And particularly, uh, back to the, the challenge of but, um, global biodiversity governance, it, it can never be purely global because of the, the connections to biodiversity across those range of scales which you've articulated, Stephen. Indeed. Now, Michelle, perhaps I could just ask you a question about the process of the CBD because you, you wrote in your article that perhaps the, the long delay uh, caused by uh, postponed meetings uh, could be an opportunity uh, for the process, that the time could be used well. 
Um, and it's, it's quite interesting to me that actually there has been an online extraordinary COP uh, conference of the parties meeting to, to, to approve the budget, I believe. And, and there have also been a number of informal online meetings. Uh, so my question to you, are things happening in the virtual space uh, to lay the groundwork for the Kunming meeting? Has that, has that opportunity been taken up? I'd say yes and no. So when I wrote the article, I was probably a bit more hopeful than I am than I am now. But um, I think the Secretariat has done extremely well in this in these very very challenging circumstances. I think when I wrote the article, I was more hopeful that the pandemic would create perhaps a global, a further global shift in initiative and incentive and imperative of, of changing our relationships with nature. But <laughs> in the intervening time, the sort of build back better narratives haven't realised some of the hope that I imagined could come out of the pandemic context. And with parties still not having met in person, it will be, yes, interesting to see once everybody can get together again, whether, so the Secretary has have done a great job in sustaining momentum, but whether the pandemic pause have, has created this opportunity to re reflect and then that then translates to higher levels of ambition or yes, people just meet again and we're back on the similar trajectory of before. I, I hope the former, but it's likely to be the latter, I think. Well, it's quite clear that there's a lot at stake this year at the Kunming meeting if it does happen in October. And I think uh, we've, we've heard today uh, the important background for that, the developments in biodiversity law, some of the challenges, and, and also on the hopeful side, some of the opportunities for progress. Uh, so Dr. Michelle Lim, thank you very much for this webinar. Thanks, Stephen, and thanks everybody.